0: Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Is your organization a talent magnet? Is your culture the envy of the business market? Top organizations need top leaders. Make sure that you are that leader. This show will ensure that you are. Welcome to I Lead, The Leadership Connection with Dr. Linda Sharkey. Leaders today are more than just results. They are about creating legacies of great people, driving winning organizations, and raising the bar for themselves and that of their teams. Now, here is your host, Dr. Linda Sharkey.
2: Welcome. I'm Linda Sharkey. I'm your host of I Lead, The Leadership Connection. And we've just been having so many great shows. I, I'm just so excited about all the presenters we have and uh, a lot of great work um, in the area of coaching. I'm going to be speaking at a uh, worldwide coaching session. Marshall Goldsmith, my uh, other colleague, is going to be speaking there. Of course, the world knows Marshall as the, as the great uh coach of all the top executives, and we're going to be doing some workshops and having some discussion around how you drive coaching into your culture. Um, I do a lot of programs building and helping develop HR people as internal coaches, because as you do more and more work, you realize that coaching is a great way for people to grow and learn and develop and stay on the top of their game. And not everybody can afford to have an executive coach like Marshall or myself. And so I've been doing a lot of work that I've been taking around the world uh, to develop a cadre of internal coaches using the process spearheaded by Marshall. And it's just been really successful. I mean, Marshall was kind enough to do an article in LinkedIn just recently talking about the results that the internal coaches that, that, that I've developed using his methodology have had um, – equally as good results as, as uh, using external coaches, and I'm, I'm actually quite proud of that. So if you're interested in uh, bringing coaching into your organization, which I believe is a great way for people to learn, develop real time, and really make lasting behavioral change, give me a call. I would love to uh, talk to you about that, which leads me to my guest today. I've known about Elliot Massey for a long time. And actually we used him at GE when I was there, uh, helping us with e-learning strategies, et cetera. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to a dinner that Marshall was hosting uh, for other thought leaders uh, and invited me to attend um, with the woman that was there from Alibaba, the uh, major technology company from China. And I reconnected with Elliot and just loved all the things that he was talking about. And I said, would you, would you join the show? He is the guru on leadership and learning. He speaks all over the world. He's written numerous books. He really spearheaded e-learning uh, in the corporate world and is really now taking all of this to the next level. So, Elliot, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. I really appreciate it.
3: Well, it's an honor to do it, Linda. We have we have a a, a swirly past of connection to GE and other places and it's a, yes. it'll be fun to uh, it'll be fun for us to weave a cloud around learning and leadership today.
2: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well we've we've sort of been weaving around for years and it's kind of nice. Um so you also are a producer of, of some great Broadway shows, Kinky Boots and I mean, what's, and there's another one. Well, too. Tiki Boots,
3: American in Paris, and I'm literally oh, on my way to Chicago on Monday because we have in rehearsal a new, uh, very, probably haven't heard a lot about it, although you've heard the title. It's a new musical called The SpongeBob Musical, and uh, it's going to bring the humor and music that you saw in Book of Mormon. Uh, to Broadway in the SpongeBob musical, and I'm partnering with Nickelodeon on that. So, oh, uh,
2: how exciting. Uh, well, so I in have addition to, I to love learning, to-
3: we're doing Broadway, which, by the way, they're both about creating exquisite experiences for people. So they're kind I of know. connected,
2: you know. They are kind of connected. I was just going to ask you that. How did you make that connection between, you know, theater and, and learning, even though they are? explain that to Explain that to me.
3: Well, in, in a funny way, they're both about learning, if you think about it. Uh, I was in the learning field, and, you know, I believe it's very difficult, if not impossible, to teach something you don't also practice and that you're not also a learner at. You know, like, I never want to be with a subject matter expert who isn't a subject matter learner. Right. And uh, when about 10 years ago, I said to myself, well, I love what I do in, in the world of organizational learning, and I wanted to see if I could stretch and do something not in replacement but in addition to and so my my extra new chapter was uh ended up being broadway and and in my world, I saw an enormous connection you know you're creating uh stories that are powerful you're creating yeah. experiences that are powerful uh you have script, you have music in some cases, you have audience, and so uh I found I, my background in learning helped me be, a, I think, a, a better Broadway producer. And my experience in Broadway has helped me do, you know, I think some more creative, interesting things in the corporate space. So they, at least in my mind, they're woven together.
2: Yeah, I think they are, too. And, and you know, we use a lot in development, you know, improvisation mm-hmm. and um, Sort of that creative thinking, of, you know, acting things out, all of that. So there is a huge connection. I think it's it's really very exciting. Anyway, I loved Kinky Boots. The next time I'm on Broadway, I'm going to see American Paris. I haven't seen it yet, and I can't wait till your new show is out. When is SpongeBob, it supposed to hit, yes. SpongeBob? When is it supposed to hit?
3: Uh, we're we're opening in Chicago on the uh, I think it's the seventh of, of June, wow. only for about a month, and we're just getting all of the. Um, Pieces together, and then later on, we'll be in Broadway. Uh, later on in the fall, we hope. So,
2: oh, excellent, wonderful, that's great. So, Elliot, tell me, how did you get into e-learning in the first place? What what drove you in that direction? And and you said when I talked to you just recently, you said it really wasn't just the Easter stood for four things, four different things.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. My my background um, was one of a person who was intrigued in two different arenas. Um, I was always intrigued with uh, business process and facilitation and group process and learning. And I had worked for the National. I had worked in a project for the National um, uh, uh, training centers and NTL and some other things and had studied under um, you know, Carl Rogers and other folks. Right. So that was sort of my psychology and, and, and learning background. But I also am a geek <laughs> and yeah. uh, and I got involved in computers back when they were mini computers before they were mainframe computers. And, and uh, I always felt that there was this interesting connection someday between learning and technology and, yeah. uh, And so as microcomputers started to come out, I uh, was approached and worked with uh, Microsoft and WordPerfect and IBM and Lotus and others to uh, look at how people could learn to use the technology. So that was the first connection. And then when the Internet sort of bubbled up, we flipped that around and we said, let's not just have learning on how to use technology, let's look at how technology can, in fact, impact learning. And as you mentioned, uh, when we sort of, I'm not sure we coined it, we sort of popularized the term e-learning, um, everybody thought the e just meant electronic, and certainly that's one part of it. But it really means more. It means, you know, everywhere, everyone, evolving, uh, effective, uh, evolutionary. So it was the idea that we could use technology to, Extend and to multiply the effect of learning, and you know, and some e-learning is about uh, putting the learner and the subject matter expert far away from each other and still being able to learn. And some is about being able to let somebody learn without a subject matter expert. Uh, think of how many people watch a a YouTube video or a TED video or the like. So, uh, so that was sort of the the the. Uh, origin of it. And really, the phrase e-learning started to bubble up in the mid-1990s as we got more and more engaged with the internet. And uh, ironically, it's come so far that in the world of learning, we rarely use the E anymore, just as you know, you don't necessarily say, I'm going to do an email. You know, I'm going to send a note to so-and-so. So yeah. the e, the E, while it's there, is less of the brand. Now, the assumption is we'll always use the best mixture of face-to-face on our own and connected to other people.
2: Yeah, I think it is going to be that mixture of face-to-face. I don't think you're ever going to be able to, uh, nor do you want to get rid of that face-to-face sort of emotional connection that people have when they're in the same room together. They're kind of creating together. They're, they're, they're thinking through ideas. I think that's really uh, essential for people to learn. So let me ask you this, Elliot. What do you think of MOOCs as a, uh, you know, that's becoming the big mm-hmm. hot thing for mm-hmm. universities and all of that, what's, what's your take
3: on that? Well, I'm, I'm a, a disruptor by my character, Linda. So, you know, I'm always looking at uh, things that are disruptive. Not because I want disruption, but I think disruption often triggers learning and sometimes it actually triggers failure on the way to learning. So when MOOCs p- bubbled up a few years ago, a massive open online courses, I was one of the first people to be in all the roles. I took about eight MOOCs. I taught three of them. I helped other people do, and we even did a, an early conference on MOOCs and learning. Um, and what we found was that the model works, which is, The learner doesn't necessarily have to always be in a classroom, physical classroom. The learner doesn't always have to learn at the same speed as everybody else. And if you build a massive open online course or a MOOC, uh, I think creatively, then a funny thing happens, which is that the learners help the other learners learn. And uh, so conceptually, it works really well. Now, our problem, and one of the reasons that it actually got some intriguing press along the way, is that uh, at the same time MOOCs came along, people were becoming much more opinionated and personalized in how they wanted to do learning. You know, so um, it's kind of like that article we read in the Wall Street Journal. It's a great headline. Read the headline. Great first paragraph, great second paragraph. Maybe we don't turn to the continuation on page four. Not because it's a bad article, but we might have gotten just enough in right. that process. So right. one of the criticisms that MOOCs has gotten along the way is that, you know, there was a big one done out of, at an engineering college in, um, in California, 72,000 people signed up for the MOOC, and in the end, about 3,000 people finished. Was that a failure or a success?
1: I don't know. It's hard to I don't say.
3: Know. Exactly, exactly. And, and in in pushback to many of the people who were there, they got what they needed and then they left.
2: And then Versus they left. the right. school
3: model is you make it, you know you tough it out till the end of June, <laughs> and and you, you tough it out
2: till you take the test and you get the grade and you get you know checked off.
3: Yeah. So, yeah. But 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 we think MOOCs are evolving. You know, we certainly think that uh, oh, there's a lot of Of the same kind of activity, but it's not always wrapped up in a course. You know, it it may be wrapped up. I we see corporations that every day send out a three minute uh, video from one person figuring out something they learned that helps them do their job better. And I wouldn't call it a course, but it's a very powerful way of knowledge being shared in organizations. So uh, the MOOC is part of the disruption and. It'll probably evolve that in five, six years, if we said the MOOC, it'll probably be like if you said to a millennial, you know, do you understand how DOS works on their computer? And they're going to look at you a little strange. So uh, it'll evolve. (laughs) I would,
2: too. I don't understand how it works. We're at break. So let's take a break. We're talking to Elliot Massey, the guru of of learning and and leadership development, uh, worldwide expert. Um, When we come back, we're going to be talking about how leaders do learn and how memorization is really going to be a thing of the past. So stay with us. We're talking to Elliot Messy.
3: Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, Blackberry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, Blackberry App World, or Android Market. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN
2: CIO Talk Network.
1: Dr. Linda Sharkey promotes fact-based solutions for global organizations and leaders that are known to drive business success. Do you want to put the wow in your talent practices? How about a spring in your leadership approaches? Coaching and leadership development are proven methods that have done right, really do make good leaders great. If you want a no-nonsense, practical approach that will enable you to compete anywhere in the world with measurable results, contact Linda today. Visit lindasharkey.com. Again, that's lindasharkey.com.
0: Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. You are tuned in to I
1: Lead, the Leadership Connection. To speak to Dr. Linda Sharkey or her guest, please call in to one 472 5790 That's one 472 5790 Or you can tweet the show at hashtag ILEADTLC. We'd also love to hear from you by email. The email address is radio at lindasharkey.com. Now, back to ILEAD, the Leadership Connection.
2: Welcome back. I'm Linda Sharkey host of I Lead the Leadership Connection and I'm talking to Elliot Massey. We were just having a great conversation about MOOCs and I have to say, you know, and how people are able now through digitization to learn what they need to learn, when they need to learn it. And I have to tell you, I had to change the battery in my car key mm-hmm. and I called up the Mercedes dealer and I'm like, oh, how hey, so we well, just go to YouTube and they'll, they'll tell you exactly how to do it. And I was like, oh, okay. In two seconds I had the two batteries changed, which previously yeah, I would I love have been it. like, forever trying to figure this thing out so you know it is affecting all of us so it's it's, it's a great well it'll, it'll be interesting to see where it is five years from now and how it's going to change university learning but ellen you're such an expert on on and how leaders learn and how do leaders learn and what are you seeing about that now
0: well,
3: we're we're seeing three phenomena, and and they impact not just leaders, but we'll we'll make our way to leaders. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, a a professor who's done some great research, um, and she studied up at Harvard and taught at Columbia. Her name is Betsy Sparrow, and Betsy looked at a very interesting assumption that's popped up, which is that we're not memorizing. You know. Yeah. Uh, and you know the, the the funniest way to say it is think back twenty years ago or ten years ago, you probably knew a hundred phone numbers. I know right. three phone numbers now. Um, I don't know how to make my way to one of my best friend's house who lives in this weird cul de sac because the GPS gets me there every day. And uh, you know my wife is about to go take a trip somewhere, and 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 somebody might say, well, she'll learn on the way. You know she'll she'll go to her phone or, or the like. So one of the primary changes is that memorization has been replaced by navigational competency and um, and online access to information and and resources. Um, the second phenomena that has occurred is that the half life of knowledge is shorter you know we you you graduate, you come out of a program, you go to a briefing, whatever the event is, and realistically, probably that lasts a lot shorter amount of duration than it used to last. Um, You know, many people would say that an undergraduate degree has a half-life on the content side of four years, maybe five years. Certainly, a doctor has to continually go back and refresh what her knowledge and memory is. And then the the, the last piece of it, which is where I think we get most to the leadership element, is that um, we learn by curiosity, and we learn in part by failure, which means we're enormously motivated to learn by things that we're curious about. And one of the things that triggers it the most is when we have a safe opportunity to fail. And so what we find that leaders are more and more as, as learners Wanting not to go back to school, they don't want learning to feel like school. You know what you and Marshall do, does is is right on target. You know, coaching is in many ways an executive form of of learning. You know, it's feedback, it's perspective, it's um, it's sometimes some storytelling, and it's sometimes it's just some accountability. The other piece, though, and I, and this thing of failure is intriguing, which is. Um, A leader doesn't just want the information, they want to know where it's worked and where it hasn't. And I think one of the biggest problems, if you look at business briefings that are done, is that they're much too much about selling ourselves on what we think is true, rather than much more realistically saying, where has it succeeded, where has it failed? And the really good leader is impassionate about both sides of that or both parts of that because that, that gives them some context. And finally, and I think it's an intriguing piece, is that the way the leader learns is also by socially validating it against what other people that they trust, whether they be other leaders, whether they be their employees or their family or outside experts. And so there's this desire not just to have more content, but to have context to, to to find the story behind the story, the backstory of that yeah. so yeah that that's you know those are some of my views of of how leaders are learning
2: and, but you know it 's interesting it 's not the typical way that corporate universities run
3: no no, and in fact, bless their heart and I 've helped set up corporate universities yeah, that 's not have... where most people learn right i mean it, it's where the it's where the corporation has a statutory or an organizational commitment to dispense structured knowledge. But, you know, you think about uh, how somebody learns. I'll give you a great example. Most people learn by picking up their mobile phone or, or, or other tablet device and doing, you know, Google or web searches. Right. Um, I probably do eight to 12 a day. And I don't know if you would call that learning, but it certainly is for me learning. You know, many people learn by just talking to somebody, you know, uh, whether it be online or on an airplane or sitting next to them or in a meeting. And so you've or got Or listening this continu- to this radio show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, 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 and you have this continuum of how people learn. Unfortunately, organizations have, have focused in on the more formal um, visible, bigger learning moments. But when you ask people, how do they learn their job? They never talk about the corporate university. Right. <laughs> they never talk about the structured learning. They usually say, well, I watched Mo," or, you know, or Sarah was a really good example or, you know, I watched Sarah and I really have tried to not do anything she does because <laughs> she failed at her job. So right. it's, it's much more social.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And I don't think that's changed. I think that's always been the way it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think, you know, today it's, it's uh, you know, we're moving, we're, we're starting to realize that in a, in a bigger way, that mentoring and, you know, finding somebody who can coach you around something or having a place where you can ask some safe questions, all of those are important aspects of learning that, you know, didn't seem to exist before. And schools are set up that way as well. Um, do right. you
3: see and, schools changing? Yeah, oh, they are. I mean, they're radically changing. And, you know, the, the hardest part about the radical change of school is that we are heavily invested in a very expensive real estate right. model of school. Right. And right. yet, you know, what started off because there were people who didn't want their kids to hear about sex, probably not right. overly you know, so they homeschool them. Well, I have a friend who homeschooled their three high school kids, not to protect them from anything, but to let them soar. In their uh, in their academic achievement, but they're not being homeschooled alone at home. One's going to a science museum. One's doing a project in an arts museum. So, so I think the real estate model of of these million or tens of millions of dollars of buildings are constraining the creativity of what the learning process. My, one of my great friends, colleagues, and mentors is Sir Ken Robinson. And, and Sir Ken would say that uh, the marketplace, meaning aggressive parents and aggressive kids, will in fact put huge pressure in the next 10 years on the traditional school. Because the parents are going to say no, and the kids yeah. are going to say no, and right. uh, we're going to have to think, even, what, even take summer vacations. You know, I love this concept. They say, well, you're going to go to school till May and then take the summer off. Why do I have to take the summer off? Now, maybe I shouldn't be in school for the summer, but why is it off? Why can't I be an active, engaged learner during that time? And um, So, yeah, there's going to be much change. My, my fear? Yeah. is that it will not have the kind of equality of reach that I think, um, you know, parents who have dollars will create opportunities for kids, and I worry about some of our poorest families will yeah. not and will be stuck in, in a more traditional model.
2: Yeah, I, I I think that that's really true. and Because I do think that, that the, the more economically endowed families, for lack of a better word, will provide that exposure for their children uh, no matter where they are. And I'm seeing kids today that are doing things that I never thought of doing at 10 years of age. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just so much smarter because they have so much more access to information and they know how to get it, which is, which is really incredible. I don't know about you, but I I like the reading the newspaper on um, online because Mm -hmm. When there's a word in there, like from the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, I'm like, oh, what? Are, what's the definite? You know, you can just click yeah, on it. Yeah, you can
3: click on it. You can,
2: And you, you can, can learn immediately. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you don't have to underline it, walk over to a dictionary, yeah. look it up, and all that stuff. I mean, it's really fascinating yeah. what you can learn today and what you can learn on your own if you have that element of curiosity.
3: Right. And, and Linda, let me give you one other flip, if you will. Um you know, our traditional model was we took a course and at the end of the course we took a test and if we did well right. we got an A, B, C or D. Right. That's not how a kid plays a video game now. Kid that plays a video game, you start at a video game by taking the test. In a sense, you you do the activity and the assumption in most instances is that you won't succeed on that first pass. You know, in other words, you'll, you you won't get the gold ring, but that's okay. Right. Because then you build up this increasing competency and motivation and curiosity. And so I actually think we have to build our schools or our, whatever we call our schools to have much more simulation, much more challenge and you know, one of my favorite phrases, an opportunity to fail our way to success.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that's a that's a, a, a brilliant point. So tell us, tell me a little bit about you know. You say failure is the key to how people learn. Can you say more about that,
3: Elliot? Okay, yeah, it is. You know, it's interesting. If 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 I were going to coach you on on a sport, tennis, I was going to coach you, or on driving, or on anything else. Inevitably, you w- ideally want to be in a situation where you can try something, knowing you're going to fail. Now, if right. it's a uh, If it's a golf ball, so it goes in the water, you know, or a tennis ball, it goes on the side. But a car, you don't really want to go smash something else. So in the best of all worlds, I would have somebody learning to drive a car, spend X amount of time on a car, but X time 30 on a PC simulator so that they know what it's like to drive in a variety of hard environments. And in those environments, crash. Pilots will in a in a flight simulator, and what we found is that the more the learner has an opportunity to try something, sometimes succeed and sometimes fail, we have a greater opportunity to then learn from that. Our problem is that failure in the real world is tough. You're training somebody to do hiring. Wouldn't it be wonderful to put them into a simulator environment where they had to hire a hundred people and then fast forward to see what happened over one month, twelve months, three years? You know, this is brilliant.
2: And, and this is a great place to break Elliot, and we're going to come back and talk about that because I think there's some organizational cultures that are resistant to that kind of approach and failure, and uh, I think it's very limiting. So stay with us. We're talking to Elliot Massey. We're talking about the role of failure, how to use simulations in developing people, and how to make it safe for people to learn by trying. Stay with us.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice VoiceAmericaTRN.
3: Did you know where you bank really matters? Values-based banking is a growing, global, viable alternative to the current banking system. Find out how you can join, share, and participate in a positive money movement that is designed to put the power back in your pockets. Listen for Building Banking on Values with host Linda Ryan. Your money matters. There is a solution, and you can be a part of something greater. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It's about a different kind of banking.
1: Dr. Linda Sharkey promotes fact-based solutions for global organizations and leaders that are known to drive business success. Do you want to put the wow in your talent practices? How about a spring in your leadership approaches? Coaching and leadership development are proven methods that have done right really do make good leaders great if you want a no-nonsense practical approach that will enable you to compete anywhere in the world with measurable results contact linda today visit lindasharkey.com again that's lindasharkey.com To speak to Dr. Linda Sharkey or her guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can tweet the show at hashtag ILEADTLC. We'd also love to hear from you by email. The email address is radio at lindasharkey.com. Now, back to ILEAD, the Leadership Connection.
2: Welcome back. I'm Linda Sharkey, your host of I lead the Leadership Connection and I'm having a great conversation with Elliot Massey and we're talking about the, the role of failure and simulations. and uh, you know and Elliot was saying just before we took the break that you know there are many organizations that don't embrace failure or they say they embrace failure, but they really don't. They don't reward the risk taker, they don't reward the person that you know keeps trying, keeps trying to perfect. What do you think the role of culture has to do with that and leadership
3: has to do with that, Elliot? Well, I How do you break that mold? Well, I think there are words that go together. Um, I think if you are in a risk-adversive culture, and there are certain organizations that are, for good reasons, risk-adversive, failure is deadly. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are situations in which failure needs to be... Um, either simulated or constrained. You know, I, I don't really want people dying on that amusement park ride. Right. But if I'm running an amusement park, I can't be risk-adversive because I have to always be innovating. So there's an right. interesting piece between innovation and failure. Now, where I think they go together, where culture comes together, is the we, not the you. We're going to try this. We're going to experiment. We're going to run a test, and really a test meaning it could succeed or fail. You know, it's a test. Um, And if you're truly committed to innovation, then what you have to build into your financial spreadsheet, but more importantly to your emotional spreadsheet, it's not only the willingness, but the hope that we'll fail our way to success you know because and and it's putting those words together that's that's totally critical because in most organizations either failure gets covered up gets discouraged or then becomes the blame game in that and you know i own a tesla uh it's wonderful because i get updates to my tesla come in automatically and about four months ago they they added something to the Tesla, and there was this lever that did something. And it didn't work, Linda. And yeah. within three days, the online, there were 50 people saying it didn't work. And the next day, it upgraded, and the bad thing went away. And nobody got fired for that. Yeah. And but that's we, the way it should be. Yeah. yeah, and, and but, but it is really important because a lot of times people think innovation is about being brilliant, smart, right. and making a lot of money. Right. It's also about the ability to fail your way to success.
2: Yeah, I love that. That's a great phrase. Fail your way to success. That's that's really important. So how do you think, uh, Elliot, that how do you think that this is all going to impact the future of learning? If you had a crystal ball, what what would you say that? The future is going to look like
3: well, I, I think it's going to be interesting because I'm, I, you know, we're going to go back to a friend that you and I and Marshall know, uh, which is Frances Hesselbein from, from right. the Girl Scouts. You know, right. I have my scout badge. Uh, literally, a friend at Yahoo heard me speak, and where I, I mourned the fact that my mother threw out my Boy Scout badges, and she quietly found out what my badges were, and she at a big speech gave me. My badge is back and it was so incredible. You know, I had my my like wood cooking badge, my atomic energy badge. I wish that the girl scouts and the boy scouts would get together and would would uh support adult badges. Because you sort of imagine, you know, you go and you hire a COO or you hire a CFO and they have competencies and like but inevitably you hire the leader and the assumption is they know everything perfectly. But no, they've never done a merger acquisition with a Middle right. East country. They've never, <laughs> right. you, know, you know, they've never truly figured out how you deal with, you know, un- unspoken bias or any of those other elements. So I wish we got to a point where we were able to think uh, literally the way I thought about badges as a kid. I knew I didn't know it. I knew I wanted to get it better. I knew I'd be tested on it. And there wasn't a list of the badges I failed to get, but I wore proudly the ones that I got. And I think in the digital age, we can do that and, and align that. Even think about somebody who gets their MBA, align that, not just with what school they went to, but what were the competencies they had coming out of that? And what are the competencies they have to keep getting better at? You know, because the world changes.
2: The world changes. So you're constantly going to have to be honing your your technical skills for sure. There's no two ways about it. There's never going to be somebody who is perfect at any job and has the knowledge at any given time because the world is changing so much. So what does that say? I mean, to me, that says that what you need to be looking at is what Google is doing, you know, the smart creative, mm-hmm. you know, the people that are smart enough to say, oh, I don't know anything about that. I'm going to find out about that. The people that are constantly curious about what's going on and constantly updating what they know.
3: Um, And, And, Linda, but people can look at what you do because it's really an interesting metaphor. You know, in the old days, the smart person was the person who had a ton of stuff in her head. Now the smart person has a lot in their head, but they have a really good primary, secondary and tertiary network of people, yeah. you know. So the way you get smarter is you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, and boom, you learn right. from them. Where they go on your your radio show? That's exactly right. You know, no, but, but 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 that's that's the key because the good leader is you know we we both we're talking about you know CEOs like Alan Wally. You know, it's not right. what he knows as a CEO. It's his ability to work with people to get the knowledge from the people who know stuff about that. And, right. and so I've learned a lot that if I'm curious about something, I start to learn it. And in many instances, I go, you know, I know enough now, and now i got to find somebody who really knows it. And when I need to know more, I'm going to go to that person. Right. Because I don't want to be smart on every item, but I want to be navigationally connected to somebody who's smart along that way.
2: Yeah. Navigationally connected. I love that term. You know, you you spoke a little bit about uh, unspoken bias. I, I have this thing that I'm I'm kind of noodling through that really, you know, when we talk about diversity and we talk about all these other things, really what it is 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 trying to understand that unspoken bias right. that we all have and that it's not safe to talk about in a lot right. of places. And it needs to be made
3: safe. So right. what do you think
2: about that? Well, oh, Ellen?
3: yes. I mean, I'm going to be controversial. You know, I I went through early on in my life a lot of work on diversity and building a, a justice. Society. I was a youth coordinator for Bobby Kennedy when he ran for president. Oh, wow.
2: Very and cool. And one
3: of the things I learned, and I learned it, it was a very powerful thing heard from a uh, civil rights leader. And he said, most of the stereotypes about people are wrong, but some of them are right. And the unspoken part is the stuff that's right is never confronted, so it, it yeah. quietly validates that which is wrong. Right, right, you right. Know, Very so, interesting. So it's an yeah. interesting thing. You know, so I might say for instance, you know, um, my Asian friends have a high propensity of being smart at at, at you know, math or I have Afro-American or black friends who are good dancers. I could do any number of these biases, okay? Right. And and ironically, some of it is wrong, and some of it is a, a pattern that may be right. But our problem is we take that pattern and extend it to stuff that has nothing to do with it. But we're uncomfortable. We are so uncomfortable to talk about our cultural patterns. Right. And so, you know, uh, I have to, as a male CEO, Regularly un- understand who doesn't have kids. I've got to I've got to look at my biases towards women who work for me who have children. Exactly. You know. Exactly. I, I, I don't I don't know that. And then I ask these questions, which probably in another situation I could get shot at. But you know, is the single parent mad because the 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 parental parent the the parental the single employee mad because the parental employee is having these extra benefits? And the answer right. is they probably are, but they aren't talking about it. So, well, they're
2: afraid to talk about it
3: yeah, because yeah, yeah. because
2: of the bias, which they're very well aware of. I mean, yeah. this issue of, you know, women not getting to the top, Elliot, this has, this, has, this has to do with an inherent brain-wired bias that has been around for centuries. And you yep. can't – centuries, mil- you know, forever. And you can't just say, okay, well, now we're going to have daycare centers, we're going to have this, we're going to have that. If people recognize and see an inherent bias in the way people are treated because they are female or they are, you know, uh, yeah, transgender, yeah. whatever, they're not going to make use of those things. Right. And its and I, I really do believe it's not until we're able to really have honest and authentic conversations about those unspoken biases that we're going to be able to get beyond it.
3: And, and, and you said there were, and I'll add one more phrase, Awkward. meaning we've got to be prepared to have awkward conversations. I mean, I have a colleague who is very, very good at four or five things, and they would probably quietly admit that they're not very smart, but they're very good at some things. But how do they say out loud that in a cognitive sense they're not that smart? Well, we don't have organizations that will ever have that conversation, you know. But right. yet if you're a leader, you're always recognizing the mosaic of the people that are around you, you know. And I don't want to just go to the smartest people because they could be smart and X and dumb and Y, you know. <laughs> but 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 you're right. I, I don't think – I think we're beginning – we've recognized it's an important uh, arena to be talking about. But it's going to take some huge risk-taking, including things that will be risky or even offensive to the people who are advocates of addressing unspoken bias. You know? Right. So,
2: yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's 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 definitely the case, and I I do think you're seeing more and more admission that this that that why things are. Operating the way they do is because there is this unspoken bias, and you know there, there's more recognition of it now. To your point, what do we do about it? Right. And it is awkward, and we have to be willing to hear some things that we don't want to hear necessarily.
3: And I think we also have to realize that bias isn't innately evil. Correct. If we if we accept it as part of the landscape, I mean, I grew up in a poor multicultural community, and there were all of these sort of stereotypes, if you will, right. and 90% of them were wrong, but we joked about them. In a funny way, we joked about them, and I'm not sure it was always without pain, right. but we actually got along better there because we weren't hiding what those, what those stereotypes or the biases were about.
2: Right. Right. I think that that's really, really true. Elliot, we have an a email in from the, the field, and it's from a learning and development professional in a, a major company. And this person, she's asking, what three pieces of advice do you have uh, for someone who's responsible for running a corporate education
3: department? Well, there are three. The three pieces I would come in. The first one is uh, practice what you hope to preach. Meaning, it's really critical that we don't prescribe things we haven't done. You know, and I go to all sorts of organizations that are regularly telling people to take e-learning. Some of which is good, and some of which ought to be regulated by the Food and Drug Administration (laughs) because it's deadly. You're right. And and the leaders haven't taken it. I go crap. That's wrong. If you're going to prescribe it, you're going to eat it. I think the second piece is to acknowledge how social learning is. Great research done over 40 years by uh, uh, David and Roger Johnson from University of Minnesota, who would argue that no matter what environment you learn something, you know, what, what construct, be it a class online, you know, in a book, inevitably the learning really takes shape when you talk about it with somebody else. And, um... I think we have to continue to understand the social dimension. And I don't think it's about putting up a Facebook post necessarily. When I mean social, I really mean an ability live or digitally to to be interactive with another person on a topic. And in fact, the learner becomes an expert only when they can teach it to somebody else in in, in my in my frame. Yeah. And then I think the third piece, and this is an interesting one, particularly for your your listeners who are global, um, we have to really globalize our learning modeling, which means, you know, Marshall and I were both keynoters at a, uh, conference in Taiwan. And we got up and we joked, how can we brought two white guys who are 65 over to talk to you about learning in a culture that was mastered learning thousands of years before the United States came around? You know, um, That's a good
2: question. We
3: need to look at the learning models. From other parts of the world, I was in Africa and had an incredible conversation with how folks in in this rural village taught each other skills. And I think we part of being global isn't to Americanize or first world eyes. So I think we need to look at the learnings from other parts of the world. And the reason it comes back to learning and development person is that you have people increasingly who come from other places, and we need to to embrace and, and learn from that process. Um, finally, um, most of what people learn they won't ever credit that they got from you. It's the least appreciated role to be in, you know, um, because most people learning, they, they reward themselves when they succeed at learning, you know. So if I've done a really good job of creating a learning culture, I have to just get my smiles from the fact that it's there rather than I'm going to get a lot of bravos or applause for doing it. Um, for, for doing but, it. It's a thankless job is what you're saying. Yeah, it, it, well, it, I think it's a yeah. thankful, but yeah. it's not direct. It's not from the learners that you get the thanks. You get the yeah. thanks when you see the impact on the culture,
2: on on the culture and the people. Though I have to tell you, I've had so many people over my career come back, stay in touch with me, at very obscure times, and say just thank you for the things that you know. It just was heartwarming that I, yeah. I didn't even know that I had that kind of impact on them, and I was I was thrilled to find that out, Elliot. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's just a, a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. And uh, it was just a pleasure to reconnect with Marshall and and you. And uh, I hope to
3: stay in touch. We, we we will do that. Linda, thank you very much. It's been an honor to be here.
2: Great. Thank you. And my coming up next show going to be uh, Rita Gunther McGrath and uh, we're going to have a great conversation about strategy and the end of uh, competitive advantage. So I hope that you all will stay tuned for, for that one. And uh, we've got a great lineup uh, through the month of May, uh, starting with Elliot, which will be terrific. Um, I also want to reinforce, coaching is such a great way to help people learn. And if you don't, If you have an opportunity to help teach your leaders and managers, bring them through the experience of being coached by their peers, coaching each other, helping each other get better at what it is that they're trying to do. It is such an enriching and rewarding experience. And I, for one, uh, you am a devotee of Marshall Goldsmith's approach, uh, I've adapted it and used it. And it's just so powerful for people. And I've had very senior executives who go through their own kind of peer coaching experience with a, with with, with me, uh, uh, a, uh, a, a sort of, I call myself the sort of the learning coach for them. And then They turn around and they want to become like the master coaches for other people in their organization, and they do a phenomenal job of it. and And you want to talk about changing the culture to one that you know that embraces uh, learning and uh, embraces that notion that Elliot was talking about around failure and and testing and trying different things. That is really a great way to do it. It's a great way to do it. Well. Thanks, everybody, for being with me. I'm so thankful for all my uh, listeners and all the people that uh, email into the show. And I
1: hope to talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of I Lead, The Leadership Connection. Please join Dr. Linda Sharkey again for another show next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a successful week.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.